Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Pat McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a mastermind facilitator, a best-selling author, and a speaker. I love taking these nonprofit leadership topics on the road or into your Zoom room. If you need someone to lead your next conference or workshop, check out my new speaking page at PattonMcDowell.com for more information. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this fantastic conversation I had with Julie Kratz, who brings wonderful experience in her role as Chief Engagement Officer at Next Pivot Point, a firm that she leads which promotes allyship and inclusion across all dimensions of diversity in the workplace. Well, of course, all that Julie is working on has many applications in the nonprofit sector, because while there is some progress being made, there is still much work to be done. And among many topics I raised with Julie and sought her advice, one was simply this, what can nonprofit leaders do to attract and retain diverse and talented leadership teams? Well, that topic alone is worth listening to this conversation because she has lots of great advice, practical advice, tools that you can apply through your hiring practices, through your meeting management, and even down to your individual evaluations of your team members. Lots of reasons to check out the show notes for this episode. It is number 178. Just go to the new podcast page at patmcdowell.com and you'll find all of the resources we discussed as well as more information on Julie and the great work she's doing at Next Pivot Point. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Julie Kratz. Julie, thank you for joining me on the path. Oh my gosh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited about this conversation, Julie. We've had some preliminary discussion about the great work you're doing in the nonprofit community for a very important series of of topics, frankly. And and let's start with a fundamental question that you and I have discussed is why do nonprofit leaders struggle to build a diverse and talented leadership team? Yeah, it seems kind of counterintuitive, right? Like nonprofit, you imagine them, you know, on the front lines, uh, doing charitable, you know, volunteer work and being in these diverse communities. Um, But what's really interesting, especially with leadership teams and boards, is that rarely do nonprofits reflect the very communities of which they hope to serve. And that's just so problematic from every perspective possible, right? Indeed. But my corporate clients love to be like, well, where are the, you know, woman-led industries or where are people of color dominant in leadership? And I'm like, so those don't exist. Even in nonprofit, we know 70% or so of the front lines are, you know, women, people of color, you know, lots of representation in the front lines, but it's it's flip-flopped up at the top. And that is every industry is this way. It's not just nonprofit, but I think there's a misleading perspective here that somehow we have a lot more women leading a lot more folks of color you know folks with disabilities lgbtq plus etc because diversity is beyond (laughs) just demographics yeah right well your point's well made and it's worth underscoring because you're right i think the expectation of diversity exists within the sector at large but in fact the higher you get and i think board source confirmed this with a lot of nonprofit boards and what you and i are talking about today is on the staff side that right as you 
move to senior leadership diversity is lacking. So before we unpack that and some of the really great tools and strategies you bring to organizations around this point, talk about your journey. How did you get mm. into this kind of work, Julie, yourself? Yeah, I appreciate the question. It's been a journey. <laughs> and I say diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, all these words that get thrown around. It is a journey, not a destination. And how we find ourselves into this work is often, you know, serendipitous. Uh, for me, I spent 12 years in corporate, um, started my own business, uh, Next Pivot Point, eight years ago. And it was really essentially with the purpose of I didn't see myself reflected in these corporate settings. And, you know, at the time I thought, well, that's because it was consulting or agriculture or construction equipment manufacturing, you know, but just like we talked about with nonprofits, it is literally everywhere you look. Same thing, right? Yeah. You don't see yourself reflected. And as a young woman that, I mean, I was really serious about my career. I was willing to move. I was willing to do hard things. I worked all the shifts. I did all the, like the, checked all the boxes they told me I had to check and then, you look around, you're like, this is where it got me. I'm not very happy. And I feel sick on Monday morning. <laughs> Maybe that's not normal. And yeah, so that's how I got into diversity work. And at the time, you know, this was a long, long time ago, at least in the diversity space. So much thankfully has changed. You're right. But I'm a white woman. You know, I'm cisgender. I'm also straight. I don't have a disability at this time in my life. So it's like, well, where do I lend my voice in this conversation? I, I want to help people like me, right? So white women... Yeah, yeah, it really did. I mean, in hindsight, that was a problem um, that I quickly figured out, whoa, there is way more to this conversation. So men of color really wanted to like get involved in the work as allies. And then I learned women of color had a very different experience. And then you learn all the other dimensions of diversity, you know, sexual orientation, disability, age, socioeconomics. And it's like, wow, this is fascinating. The human experience is just not well reflected in the workplace. And then of course, you know, the summer of 2020 just changed the conversation. And um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of cause for optimism, but I think we also have to be mindful that the world is not changing as quickly as people think. Um, right. And there are some steps back that we're taking um, right now, whether that's politically or just you know, overall representation. So I, I really think this is my life's work, but it's a... Uh, it is. It is a journey. <laughs> well, it, you and I talked about it. It's hard work, and there's much work to be done. And as you said, if 2020 perhaps in a positive way amplified some of these issues, we can't uh, rest on the laurels of that year, can we? And you're seeing maybe some steps backwards uh, in addition to the progress. But let's before we move on, for those listeners who don't know about Next Pivot Point, tell us what does Next Pivot Point do. Yeah. So, I mean, simply put, we we help workplaces be more inclusive. And what does that mean in real behavior change? I mean, that's that's what we need is not just the representation. You know, back to summer 2020, I think every CEO made a statement. Not every, but a lot of CEOs made the statements, you know, a lot of nonprofit leaders I know stepped in the space and you know, the people, right thing, right? Yeah, maybe. They tried, I think, and then yeah. they like the actions didn't back it up. And so where I'm trying to help is with behavior shift. So what are the behaviors we need to create more inclusive workplaces so that when we have diverse groups of folks join, that they feel included, that they feel seen, that they feel heard, that they feel a sense of belonging that all humans need in the workplace, like that never stopped. You know, the sense of connection and belonging is a very human primal need. And so what does that mean? That means 
teaching people how to be more curious, uh, which is funny because, you know, anyone that has kids or it's something we kind of unlearn as we get older, especially right. in the workplace, like be stoic, have all the answers. It's like, no, turns out that's not what makes people want to follow you. And it's an ineffective decision-making style as well. So how do you show up with curiosity, empathy? You know, we, we talk about it as being an ally. Um, how do you show up for people that are different from you? And I think that's really important, especially for folks that might identify more in the dominant or majority groups where you see yourself more reflected. Wow. When you show up inclusively, people really take note and they, you can model that change that you want to see around your organization. So I help, help leaders figure, figure out putting those puzzle pieces together. That's fantastic. And you, you touched on several things that we can unpack further because it, it's, difficult in many cases, even the language for a, 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 an ally or a potential ally, uh, we tiptoe sometimes through using the right language. And I know you've talked about this and spoken to this, that uh, diversity topics can be difficult in the workplace because we're not sure what to say. But do you have advice on that front or some of the terms that I guess we as nonprofit leaders need to better embrace yeah and that's a hot topic right now inclusive language right. I, I think and this is by no means the only step um but i do think this is kind of like an appetizer for people that are getting warmed up for <laughs> the full entree of dei it's like oh my gosh you know people people's head spins with i think simple words but it's just we fear what we don't understand yeah exactly so someone says intersectionality, so it's like, I don't know what that means. Oh my gosh, right. I'm going to be looked at like I'm not smart because I don't know this. Come on, like think about intersectionality. Like, what do you think? If it's a diversity, maybe that means like intersections of difference coming together. There you go. You know, and if you don't know, Google it and find a reputable resource. But I do think people are afraid of this stumble and bumble too. We're We're living in some times that are very polarizing. So if you say... You know, outdated language. Um, and there's a lot, I don't want to repeat the language, but we used to use gay as a pejorative, you know, right. for example. Exactly. Even the term queer has, you know, been reclaimed now. Um, and it's an okay word to use not to identify somebody as, but if someone signals that that's how they would like to be um, called as their identity, you can certainly use that language. Pronouns, you know, <laughs> such a, a hot topic. Hot topic. Yes. And the, and the nuances of saying person with disability versus disabled person, you know, person first language versus right. applying a label and how we, you know, call in racial differences, people of color, or maybe listeners have seen BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, you know, so these acronyms, these terms, you know, they start to enter mainstream conversations. And I think some people just want to be like, no, it's not happening. This is too much for me to learn or Oh my gosh, my third grade teacher said you can never use they them for a singular person. <laughs> so right. I the grammatical grammatical roadblock, right? <laughs> Which is not is since been disproved. So a few years ago, um, the Institute for Grammar, I forget what they're called, but they did say it was okay. So they acknowledged it. Okay, good. But this is shifting, right? And I think for folks that feel like a lot's changing very quickly, one, it really isn't changing that quickly. These are these are terms that are just evolving, like all right. of our language does. And you know, something like gender identity, you know, the fact that we've described it as a binary is actually fairly new as from an evolutionary perspective for how long we've been on the planet and how cultures have talked about it until the last, you know, a few thousand years. So 
anyway, that all that to say, yes, it can feel like a lot <laughs> to, um, you know, just be willing to try on some of the language and you'll signal to others like, hey, this person is trying to get it. And if you make a mistake, usually people say, hey, that's not a word we use anymore. Or, hey, you might want to replace it. Like, I had a, grace. Right. Yeah. I had a, a well-intentioned client last week used the word handicap. And I said, actually, the words that we use now are disability. You know, it's just making that distinction. But Good point. I, they're not a bad person. They remember that was a word we used. And, and still people use mistakenly a lot. And so just using that as an opportunity to learn and to grow versus shame and blame, which usually doesn't work out so well. No, it doesn't. And it, I guess, and Julie, this is where you help people, I'm sure. Um, one is just creating conversations where folks can be vulnerable and, and authentic in their attempts to embrace this language. Should I put a, a glossary of terms in my staff handbook? Are there things with, with that as a nonprofit leader, would that demonstrate that hey, here are some principles I'd like us to consider in our language, or what are some other ideas maybe you've seen work or you recommend for a listener right now thinking, all right, I want to get my arms around this, but I'm not sure what to do. Yeah. I mean, language is one piece. Um, so I like, um, especially if you think about newer employees, especially uh, younger employees that are more likely to maybe be newer employees for your organization. Right. Yeah. This stuff, they're they're hip to it. They got they're it. Familiar. So like, yeah. But having, I mean, that level set, I think, a, you know, a recorded training module, you know, that first week of orientation, you know, the trainings and the things you have to do. I mean, why not put a DEI topic on there, whether that's inclusive language or what inclusion means that our company. And I think if you haven't defined that, if you haven't sat down as, as a nonprofit, if you haven't thought about, okay, what does diversity and inclusion mean to us? Why does this matter to us? And, you know, what is that roadmap of activities? We call that like a DEI strategy. It yep. doesn't have to be super complicated. I'm talking like a paragraph and, you know, a few bullet points. It doesn't have to be unless you're, you know, a massive organization, probably want to have a more robust plan. But start there. Have some drips of education and content. That's a big part of the journey. And the last thing I'd say, and this addresses more of the systemic long-term aspect, is measure it. We measure what gets done. Right. And so if you don't have, you know, if you're not measuring not just the representation, but the actual behavior and the perception of inclusion on your team at the leadership level, at the board level, frontline level, you find vastly different pictures of what people's perceptions are at different levels of the organization too. So, and it, without data, it's it's hard to know even where to focus. Oh, specifically though, surveying instruments and and on an annual basis or a regular basis, uh, specifically, what do you recommend there? Yeah, we have a few different options. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of meeting people where they're at with this yeah. work. So if you're like, I don't need like, you know, this, you know, 20 minute you know, annual exercise. I don't think you have to do that. I, I really like poll surveys and listening sessions better for smaller organizations. So, you know, that could be somebody like myself coming in and, you know, doing some focus groups or listening sessions or, Using a simple assessment, we have a 20 um, question one on our website that's, you know, just the basics. I, I call it like a, we have a good, better, best model to it. Ours is like the good free assessment. Nice. And we have partners that do a best and a, a better and best, more robust um, slice of data. Um, but I think asking some questions of like, do you feel like this is an inclusive workplace? Do you feel like you belong here? You know, how would you rate that on a scale and get, grabbing some of that data? We find leadership teams over-index on those things and frontline employees not so much. 
No, understood. It, Julie, I would assume often leadership teams assume they're responsive when, in fact, you're finding that frontline folks say, no, this is not as inclusive an environment as perhaps leadership thinks. Is is that among the benefits of some survey or pulse instruments? Yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so here's the the challenge, especially when you have you know even the best, well-intentioned, purposeful organizations that are, you know, led um, by somebody, I just say dominant group or majority group, you know, usually that means a white, straight, male, you know, cisgender, able-bodied. We say cisgender, by the way, just disclaimer there on that word. That just means you identify the same gender of which you're assigned at birth. Um, so if, if that, you know, bears out, which it does for most nonprofits and organizations around the world, you, you have a different set of lived experiences. So, you can't know what it's like to be somebody that's different from yourself. It, it just, you know, for me, I'm white. I, I don't know what it's like to be black or brown. I'll never fully understand that. Can I empathize? Can I be curious respectfully? Yeah. And when I compare notes with somebody who has a different lived experience than me, whether that's race, gender, you know, age, class, you're going to find a vastly different human experience that that person has had in their life. And I think that perspective is really important, but that perspective is hard to compare notes on with something like diversity, equity, and inclusion, because you don't know what you don't know. And so I, I think that data capturing perspective sharing, however you do that as an organization, that can be extremely powerful. But it strikes me that among chief among the things we as nonprofit leaders, leaders anywhere can do is simply acknowledge what we, we, well, we don't know, right? And I think a lot of the majority issues start with an assumption that we we do know. And it sounds like you're helping break down through your conversations and other means uh, at least an acknowledgement that hey, I don't get, I don't claim to understand, but I guess. Julie, a lot of times I've seen or a criticism in this space that I know you hear is that organizations will commit to like a, a one day seminar or some diversity training. And I'm using air quotes here. And that kind of checks the box. And obviously mm-hmm. what you're promoting. But well, first, do you see that organizations that are making token efforts, but really not diving in and then uh, they need to do more? Yeah. Yeah, the one and done, check the box. Please, please don't do that. It's better not to do that. Almost worse. Is that what you're saying? Almost, yeah. Then thinking you made progress when you didn't. Yeah, it's inauthentic. It it comes across like, oh, we're going to solve centuries of inequity with this one day summit. And I find coming out of that, you know, the people, the very people you hope to engage might get a defensive feeling. Um. The people that are in marginalized communities might feel like, oh, great, now we have to talk. Like, now I had to talk about this just to know that my coworker is problematic and now I have to work with them. It can just create that. And I'm not saying that one day or one and done training can't work, but that your chances of success are much higher if you have a series of intentional, consistent commitments to diversity. And so what does that look like, right? It doesn't mean hitting the hiring button. When it's cool to hire diverse talent, it means, hey, we're going to look at the systems and the way that we hire folks and make sure that they're inclusive so that we're getting and attracting more diverse folks. It means from a training perspective, we're going to unpack a series of topics. And there's lots of ways to do that that don't require a ton of investment. 
Um, you can get really creative. Uh, a lot of the things I've mentioned on this interview, we have free resources on our website, like the diversity dictionary, like the inclusion assessment. We have a resource guide that really you can take those activities, those proven, you know, videos, podcasts, books, et cetera, do a, a lunch and learn, you know, do a, a pair and share. You know, I, I have a client that calls it a DEI snackable at the beginning of each conversation they have. They just talk about 100%. something with inclusion for five minutes and there's no shortage of content in the news cycle. Too, right, right. right. Whether it's, yeah, so-and-so said this or the new movie that's coming out, you know, whatever it is, I think you can associate it with the news cycle and pop culture in a fun, you know, appropriate way as well. So don't feel like it has to be this overwhelming, daunting thing. And yes, you know, a one day topic once a year is great. And a conversation throughout the year is uh, even yeah, more than that. Right. And, and by the way, yeah, I'm going to encourage our listeners to check out the show notes because you've got some wonderful resources. I it was privileged to get a copy of one of your books. And so there's great stuff there. And so, again, I want to encourage listeners to not be frozen, particularly someone like me, a white guy who wants to help, but maybe is just not sure what to do. And so you've provided a, a wonderful array of resources that they can implement. Um, one thing I, I'm fascinated by, you talk about the three D's model to hold someone or I guess some organization accountable. Talk about what that three D's model means and how it might apply to this conversation. Yeah, I mean, listeners, if you're in leadership and you've gone through conflict resolution or coaching <laughs> training or read a book about difficult or fierce or candid conversations, you know, there's all sorts of conversation books out there. I've read them all too. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And I always walked away thinking like, hmm, how do I do that? So like, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? So my brain works really well with acronyms, especially ones I can remember. So three Ds. Um, you know, if you want to have a hard conversation with somebody or, you know, somebody says something that's not so inclusive or someone does something that's just problematic, right? Like, oh, you know, I'll give you an example. This is a big one. A very well-intentioned nonprofit leader I worked with recently said this to me uh -oh. <laughs> and he should know better, yeah. but he said, well, I don't want to lower the bar for diverse talent, <laughs> right? Like cringy. And I was like, well, okay, let's unpack that first. Yeah, please define what you mean to me by lowering the bar. So let's define the issue. That's the first D. What, what, what is the issue here? How do you know diverse talent is not me? What is the bar? Have you objectively described the criteria, which is necessary for that role? Right. Or like a lot of job descriptions, we have a lot of lofty things on there that aren't necessary. So we don't even get groups of people that are from different backgrounds even applying because they don't feel like they me measure up and they're going to be a little harsher um, with you know how they assess themselves in the majority group. So define the issue okay, and just say, what what is the issue here? <laughs> define it. Make sure we have a clear understanding of it as a group. And then you have a discussion. I think the reason so many conversations go sideways or they don't achieve their expected outcomes or they don't reach a resolution is because someone berates the other person. And we start yelling. We start telling people how awful they are. We use words like always and never and you did this and I, you know, the more we can use collective language like we and talk about the reality of what the real situation, what the actual behavior was, what the impact of that behavior was. So much better for a healthy conversation. Got to keep our ears open, especially with somebody we disagree with, or we might feel like has said something truly problematic and hurtful. So be curious to learn from them. 
Um, because once people, you know, have that aha out loud of like, oh yeah, maybe we don't have objective criteria. Come to think of it, we're not getting diverse groups of people applying for these jobs. Like maybe that's the issue, not the bar. And then, you know, really in the conversation with a decision, you know, what did we decide to do today? And I, I think that's really important too, because emotions run high in these conversations. That's why it might it's not always great to have a conversation in the heat of the moment. Sometimes that circle back later that day or that week, you know, makes sense depending on the situation, depends on the trust that you have with the person. Public conversations, I think, are are challenging. I prefer to have them in private to protect people's egos. Yeah, right. But decide, you know, the last couple of minutes, like, what did we decide to do today? What are our next steps? How are we going to prevent this from happening? What do we need to do to fix the situation? And I think you'd be surprised in five minutes what you can achieve with somebody, how much you can create space um, for a dialogue and a space where we didn't think we did. And the last thing I'll say is if you're if you're fearful of those kind of conversations, my, my, myself included, I don't prefer them or love them. Yeah. But I know that that's what's possible for positive change. And so if I don't say anything and I just let that comment go, unaddressed, you know, I just let that, that CEO is going to say something again like that. And then, then what's going to happen? So if I'm okay with it, don't say anything. But if I'm not okay with it, then I probably need to speak up and use my voice. Yeah. Love that. And to reiterate the define, discuss, decide, or define discussion decision is a great framework that we can apply. And you're right. A little bit of alliteration doesn't hurt as we try to remember these things. And I like how you created a, 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 a space and model the di- dialogue because you're right. Sensitive topics like this can quickly devolve into angry exchanges, which are never going to make progress. But you also said, Julie, we can't avoid it entirely, right? It seems like that's the extreme. Either people are yelling at each other and getting mad too quickly, or they just simply don't say a word, right? And then it Mm-mm. just simmers. And so we have to be as leaders. We've got to create a space to have these conversations and then maybe model some of the techniques you just described to help maybe the conversation go back, which I would note in particular that maybe it's not in the large group setting. Is that, it sounds like you try to find small yeah. group settings. Yeah, I think the the one-on-one, I, in the old days when we used to be in the office and do a walk and talk, those were always my favorites because, you know, you're directionally looking the same direction. Interesting. The side yeah. by side communication does a lot. You know, anybody that has a teenager, <laughs> any kiddo, and you sit in the car with them. I remember my stepdaughter when she was a teenager was like, oh, you know, she'd sit there in the passenger seat. We'd we'd talk, and it was a totally different conversation than that adversarial. You know, I'm talking face to face, you know, facing right. you. Yeah, right. So I think body positioning matters if you can do it. You know, I mean, it's always better. I think the things people will say in a Slack channel or a team, you know, wherever you communicate, they're harsher, you know, than what we would say, looking at someone on a Zoom call or even on the phone with them, we probably wouldn't be as disrespectful or assume such negative intentions of the other person. So I, I think it's always good to talk it out live. And I mean, I've been with work teams where they had a healthy amount of trust and they had no problem engaging in conflict. So this was very um, expected of them to surface conflict in a setting, if even if it was a sensitive issue. So if that's your team, like absolutely treat it like you would other conflicts. But more often than not, this tends to be a little bit more sensitive. You know, 
I don't know why people, they fear, like one of their deepest fears is being called a racist or a sexist. You know, and people, these is really hurt. I'm like, well, don't say things. That are yeah, maybe that's why they avoid it, right? Yeah. But, you know, calling people those names or even saying that's racist, you know, the finger pointing, oh boy, that's going to go sideways real quick. So find a private space, maybe when emotions die down a little bit, create some space for a dialogue. And if others need to be included, I think as leaders, that's the biggest thing you can do is model how do you create space for different perspectives. And and I think that's just having some good ground rules that you utilize all the time as folks are meeting together. Like, hey, how are we going to make sure we all listen collectively to one another? How are we going to make sure that all the voices are heard? How are, I want to hear a different perspective. Please, yeah, someone positive. challenge me on right. this. You know, and, and that's just like healthy for not just inclusion, for, you know, innovation, decisions. Any like, topic. And that's why diverse teams outperform non-diverse teams. That power of perspective sharing and the richness of ideas that come from groups that have walked and lived all sorts of different collective experiences are going to outperform, you know, homogenous teams every single day. Um, and if you want to be relevant to the communities you want to serve, I mean, mirroring that at the top of the organization especially probably makes good sense. It absolutely does. And all right, so I'm a listener. I, I hear you. I believe you. I want to do better. Um, it sounds like you break down literally the hiring practices, among other things, right, Julie? And, and I'm struck by your point. Like a lot of our job descriptions, in and of themselves, may be barriers to diverse leadership hiring. But could you speak to that, or is that in fact what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know your audience being leaders in this space. You know, I would challenge you to look at not just hiring, but all aspects of the employee experience. And, and usually, you know, there's some buckets of you know recruiting and hiring. So, recruiting, where are you going? Where are you posting the jobs? It's kind of like fishing in a pond and expecting to get different fish in <laughs> the same pond. Like, not going to happen, right? Not Change work. your technique. Yeah, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, like that's an idea that, you know, again, summer 2020 was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do that. And then, you know, haven't kept up with it. Like be intentional, consistent, but where are you going? Making sure you're really plugging into where diverse uh, groups of folks are spending time from a recruiting perspective and show up consistently, not just at the job fair or wherever you usually do. Um, hiring, you know, look through his job descriptions. There's tons of gendered, non-inclusive, um, American idioms. There's sports references, war references, all sorts of weird stuff in job descriptions. And the requirements, if you've hired somebody that didn't meet those requirements before, remove that bullet point. Good point. <laughs> it's so and common. Before we search it again, let's fix it now. Well, it, it's it, we there's research on this where white men will look at a job description. They meet sixty percent of the criteria they'll apply. <laughs> Women are like ninety some percent. Like we want to be perfect, and and people of color, you know that imposter syndrome that you're taught, conditioned to feel, kicks in. Very real, um, and so that white male confidence, you know, because you see so much of yourself reflected in an organization or in jobs like that. That's not the same experience for folks that feel more marginalized. Um, so from a, you know, a hiring perspective, have, you know, diverse interview slates, make sure not tokenism, like the one person of color is not getting hired. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Have two or three and reflect that on the people that are interviewing as well. 
Um, so that people don't feel tokenized, that they can see themselves reflected. Um, and, and pay pay equity is a huge problem. Women, people of color are paid significantly less than our white male counterparts still today, still in the nonprofit space. So address that. You know, there's pay gap. Um, great websites where you can do your own pay gap. I mean, it's be- better usually to have an outside person do it, but it doesn't have to be this like intense effort that costs you a ton of money. I think just measuring it so you know, because um, people are going to ask. Um, and that's something you can get in trouble for. I mean, that's a risk. You probably want to protect yourself against if you're not sure if pay equity is happening. Um, and how we measure performance, there's tons of bias in how we measure performance and divvy up promotions and challenging assignments. And, you know, when you have rooms where decisions are made that are predominantly filled with a, one type of person, the mini me affinity bias kicks in and we tend to promote and give, you know, challenging assignments to people that reflect that as well so but just getting better at managing i I think that's that's the you know the underpinning of all that is bias just being really aware of your bias and managing it especially if you're a leader love that lots of of specific tactics there i'm noting and i guess there's some encouragement julie i'm seeing in, in many of the nonprofit job boards not perfectly but afp now is requiring in many cases for example job descriptions must have their salary listed, which, you know, not too yeah. long ago, that didn't happen at all, right? Which I think created still, right? Some of the salary mm-hmm. inequity that you just described. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, be transparent. Like, why are we trying to hide stuff? Be be clear about the pay range so you don't waste people's time. And then also don't ask people their previous salaries. This is something that's that. compounded, especially for women. You know, we're still at 82 cents on the dollar for similar work. Why is that? Why is this number not changing? Well, in some states it's illegal now, but you shouldn't ask prior pay because that has nothing to do with what the person totally. is worth for the job you want them to do now. Like stop because that perpetuates pay inequity. Um, so yeah, those those systemic pieces, just pulling them out a little bit. And there's great software that does some you know name scrubbing. It you know can scrub off all the things in a resume that aren't really relevant to hiring the person because we know, especially with resumes, Resume review is riddled with bias. I mean, you get what five seconds per thing. Like for me, I would. It's this is funny. So I'm dangerous. an Ohio State, yeah, Ohio State alum, and you know, I'd see an Ohio State resume as a hiring manager. Is like absolutely, <laughs> like they are so much better. Were they? No. <laughs> yep. Guilty, right? If we our own biases affect that simple resume review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so just slow it down, find ways to intervene with it, get somebody to pull out, you know, the, the characteristics that really don't matter because it, it with, when we're left to our human quick brain, which all of our brains work this way, when we make snap decisions, they're probably going to be, who do I want to hang out with and feel comfortable with, which we know people say that like, well, they're a good cultural fit. That is code language for you like them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and exactly and right. Not likely to be the person that contributes the most to your organization. So really make sure that you can objectively make a decision with objective criteria. And that goes for all decisions in that employee life cycle. Make sure you have objective measures because when we have subjective measures, those bias fills in. Well, and Julie, you touched on this, and and but it's equally important. I know you would agree that one, we have better hiring practices but also retention practices. Because I'm seeing, as I'm sure you do, we bring in a talented, diverse candidate for a job, but then we don't give him or her anything to do, or certainly in Mm -hmm. terms of leadership, or maybe you could expand on that. Is that 
where you see problems happen and tokenism occurs because the organization doesn't have anything else for this person or any direction for them to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is quite the conundrum. It's a chicken and egg problem. And so a lot of organizations have actually flipped the script from focusing just on diversity to certainly focusing on inclusion too, because that's what you're talking about is inclusion, not just diverse. Because what's the point of having diverse talent come join our organization if they're not going to stay? You know, that's very costly. So how do you create an inclusive? And it's kind of like the I should go before the D because we should be focusing on creating an inclusive workplace so that diverse talent wants to come and wants to stay and wants to be promoted and and gets to see themselves reflected in the overall employee experience. So I think about inclusive spaces that aren't even the most diverse. This is why I think broadening the definition of diversity is so important because when we just do race and gender, you know, you really Limited. leave out a lot. You just leave out a lot. And so, you know, the white guy gets scared. And if the, that's what our board and, you know, most of our senior leaders look like our nonprofit, then that's problematic. Yep. So yep. how do they, I, and I think that's the big thing is how do you get your senior leaders, everyone, not just the CEO, not just the executive director, but like getting all your leaders really engaged in the conversation so that they feel a part of it. They they feel prepared on how to manage a diverse workforce and that they're maximizing the great benefits that you can get from a diverse workforce. Because there's really no point to having somebody of color with a disability or somebody that's, you know, a very different age than the rest of the team. If they're not heard, if they're not seen, you know, if they're not taken seriously, they're not going to stay. And then it might even perpetuate that stereotype of like see they don't want to work here they didn't see, work right they, yeah they didn't work hard or like they you know we've tried but they don't want to be here it, do some introspective work and i think for senior leaders especially hold up the mirror like where are your weak spots with this like where do you struggle what conversations do you struggle with what things don't you understand that maybe you need to invest a little bit of time in understanding because You'll get so much more out of your workforce if you invest some time in yourself and your own growth. And there's great books out there. You know, we'll, we, you know, go to, go to our website. Like, you, there's great yes, resources yes. out there. You don't have to do this alone. <laughs> well, and I'm glad. And that's, this has been fantastic, Julie. Lots of great kind of strategic wisdom. Uh, it's the right thing to do. And, and you've helped our listeners with now what to actually do about it. In fact, is there any other final advice? For someone who's exploring nonprofit leadership, I want to do it well. I agree with what you're saying. So uh, anything else you'd add to the list of ideas you've offered so far? Uh, one super tangible, one thing you can do right away. Um, think about who you spend time with. H- who do you choose to spend time with? So not necessarily t- talking about your coworkers, your family. You know, we don't have choices sometimes with that. <laughs> but yeah, right. who do you choose to spend time with? Your yeah. mentors, you know, your, your friends. And, you know, I, I have people, sometimes my workshops pull up in their phone and like, look at the top five people you text with or call or on your calendar, you know, however you you know pencil in your social time and, and take an inventory, just a quick one, like gender, you know, race, ethnicity, age, uh, disability, LGBTQ, you know, those are just some of the big ones. There's many more, but how much are they like you versus how much are they different than you? Right. And I, I've done this. I'm not great. I mean, I still got a lot of work to do on this now because 
that affinity bias, that like me bias that many of us carry is an outdated, um, once helpful primal wiring um, that really we need to rewire. And so if you want to get better at this, spend time with people that are from diverse uh, groups that are from diverse areas, because it's going to make you better. You're going to learn more. You're going to grow more. It's going to make you a better leader. And, and it trickles over to, I think, you as a human being, too. When we surround ourselves with people different from us, that's how we get better. Fantastic. Great advice um, for all of our listeners, myself included. And you're right. Uh, I think we're often guilty of that association with uh, a group that's comfortable because they're like us. And so we need to be intentional, right? And if we build our networks, which I think many nonprofit leaders are uh, exploring strategic networking, I'd love to add your concept to that strategic networking. Be intentional because there are very talented, diverse leaders out there. What are we doing to better connect? So, Mm -hmm. Julie, it's fantastic. Unfair question, but I'm going to ask anyway the next one, which is a book that, and by the way, in the show notes, we're going to lift up some of the great work you're doing. So your book's going to get automatically lifted up in this effort. But is there has there been a book meaningful to you? Um, and mm. I know that's hard to ask you to limit just to one, but is there one book you would recommend in particular to our listeners? I mean, if, if I think <laughs> what our listeners can't see is my bookshelves are actually <laughs> completely full next week. You got tons week. of so ideas, I, don't you? Yes. I my one of my things I'm going to work on next year is going to Kendall because this is not sustainable. <laughs> I cannot have book, more bookshelves around my office. Hundreds of books I've read on the topic, and probably I'll just go to one that a, a favorite recent. If anybody, if you haven't followed Dr. Um, Ibram Kendi's work, love um, K E N D I. A lot of people I think picked up the How to Be an Anti Racist again, summer of 2020. Um, But he wrote a book about how to raise an anti-racist. And I know a lot of nonprofits are focused on children and communities. It's really powerful. Um, And you don't have to have kids for it to have an impact on you. But it it really does talk about how do we have these conversations about race and a lot of dimensions of difference. He brings in intersectional differences into the book. Um, So I really enjoy his work and his interviews. I mean, just how he talks about it is just so refreshing. You know, it, it's he says it in a very fact-based, like, right. what are I've you so afraid heard. of kind of thing. Like, and I think right now for the debate that's happening with critical race theory or, you know, whatever's happening in your local area, it's it's like, it's not fair to to keep white kids out of this conversation. Like, we're not, they're, they're not going to be shamed or blamed or yeah, feel guilty. They can handle it. Right. They can handle it. It's you. <laughs> the adult can't handle it. So I just love, he doesn't even say things that directly as me wanting to be more direct with his words, but that book in particular, I think is, it's just been really eye-opening. Um, but there's certainly a ton more I would recommend. And, um, I think thinking about you as an inclusive leader, you know, there's a, a really great content out there. If you just, you know, search and find a good book on inclusive leadership, there's some great stuff out there. Well, and speaking of a good place to start, Julie, I want people to find you and the great work you're doing. So where can someone find out more about you and the resources, frankly, you're offering? Yeah, thanks for that. It's um, nextpivotpoint.com. So we try to make it super easy. So if you're on social, that's our handle for everything, nextpivotpoint. That's our website um, as well. And check out the resources tab. So 
we've got a couple podcasts. We have that inclusive language document. Um, we have an assessment. Um, we have a calendar too, where you can look at all the different cultural celebrations throughout the year to be again, intentional all yes. year round. Um, and that resources list, we have personally vetted all of those. Um, I have read it, listened to it, <laughs> watched the video uh, that is on uh, like 10 pages of stuff. So you really could you know, lift that up and leverage that just to have more inclusive conversations with your team. That, that's our goal. It's fantastic uh, for all these reasons, Julie. Thanks for your wisdom, your advice, and for joining me on the path. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Julie as much as I did. And I know you came away with some practical ideas that can guide your leadership journey and perhaps help your organization be more effective building diverse and talented leadership teams in particular. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, patentmcdowell.com, where you can find out more about Julie, about her firm, Next Pivot Point, and all kinds of resources she provides there, including her books, worksheets, and wonderful tools. Make sure you check it out at nextpivotpoint.com. Always appreciate it when you share these episodes, so I hope you'll consider this one for someone else you know on the path. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Just go to the podcast page again at patentmcdowell.com and you will see the follow button and follow will equal subscribe. Don't miss out on any of these weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this one, click on the episodes button at the top of that same page. You can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes as well as search by any topic or guest name. Thanks, as always, for all that you do in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.